If you're a fan of the Presidencies of the United States podcast, like I am, you're familiar with a special series host Jerry Landry does called A Seat at the Table, in which he and a special guest cover the life of a cabinet secretary, most of whom you've never heard of. Jerry does this because no president accomplishes anything alone. The President of the United States is at the top, but he needs someone to run foreign policy, handle the money, and keep an eye on the army as well as all the ships at sea. This was never more true than in the early days of the American Republic, before presidents figured out how things worked and relied on these early cabinet secretaries to define the departments of the executive branch and figure out how they were supposed to work and what they were supposed to be doing. All the while dealing with things like economic calamities and wars, both declared and undeclared. We know about some of these early cabinet secretaries, like Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe, who went on to be presidents themselves, and Alexander Hamilton, because of a certain Broadway play. But Jerry digs into the lesser-known ones, in many cases, those who have never really been studied by historians. Why? Because without them, America would have been in serious trouble. Jerry seems to like talking about Navy secretaries with me, despite my penchant for seasickness and me having no idea how boats work. This is my second time as a guest on Seat at the Table, and it is our second Secretary of the Navy, William Jones, who served during the War of 1812. Jerry also likes to keep the identity of the cabinet members secret from his guest, which adds to the suspense, but doesn't make me look in the least bit knowledgeable about anything. So I have to make things up as I go. This is something you longtime listeners of History's Trainwrecks may be acquainted with. Take a listen to the story of one of the early Navy secretaries and why they mattered so much to the early American Republic. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of the Seat at the Table special series, I am joined by a special guest, and we have another repeat guest. Today, I'm joined by my esteemed friend, Stacey Roberts, who is the host of the History's Trainwrecks podcast. Stacey, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Jerry. I, I uh, am encouraged by your optimism that you and I can get this done. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we get started, I wanted to give Stacy an opportunity to talk about his podcast as well as his other projects, because one thing that I've learned about Stacy over the years, he is always somebody with something new going on. And so just want to check in and be able to give him an opportunity to talk about what he's been working on lately. Well, thanks for that. So I started the podcast History's Trainwrecks uh, a couple years ago because I am fascinated by historical figures who seem to have everything going for them and then basically mess it up for themselves. You know, think uh, Douglas MacArthur, Aaron Burr, people like that who had nearly gotten to the pinnacle of whatever career path they wanted. And then at the last minute, it almost seems like they intentionally just not just dropped the ball, but spiked it. So I've been doing I've got 60 episodes of that in. So it fulfills the history nerd in me. But the other thing that I've started recently is, you know, you can't study history without taking a hard look at the world around us and seeing how it compares to, well, not necessarily the good old days, but it feels like things were way different and maybe sometimes better. So 
I started a nonprofit organization called the Valley Forge Project because I was inspired by the American experience uh, in that winter and how they managed to turn what would have been a pretty serious train wreck into a, an inspiring moment. So my project is called the Valley Forge Project, and we only want two things. We want a constitutional amendment to term limit Congress to 12 years, and we want another constitutional amendment to eliminate all campaign and party donations except for the individual, and we want to cap it at an annual limit of around $2,000. And we think that this will be a way to counteract some of the malaise that we see in our government. And hopefully, uh, it, this feels like something that quite a lot of Americans support. And uh, more than anything else, I want to start counteracting the feeling of helplessness that we see whenever election season rolls around or we watch the news. And my wife said I could do it. And so, you know, if she's on board, I think that uh, I should, uh, I'd rather do something and fail than do nothing. So uh, I'm doing that. If anyone's interested in learning more about it, uh, the website is valleyforgeproject.org. And I will share that on the page for this episode. So that way it will be there as well. But it really speaks to Stacy, this idea, you know, and even going back to the founders. The Constitution is a living document. It was intended to be a living document and to change and be reshaped in time. And also this idea of citizens who are active in deciding how our government is shaped and how our our Constitution is altered and shifted to meet the needs of the time. You know, it, it really speaks to this ideal that I think is so important and key to ensuring that the United States continues on. It's always been a nation that has demanded active citizenship versus more passive. I like that phrase. I like the phrase active citizenship because it feels like we've ceded our power to special interests or corporate you know, investment or um, people that have kind of small agendas instead of big ones. And any time in our history where the country has really done the most good for itself and for the world is when most of the American people are like, wait a second, we're in charge. So here's what, here's what we want you to do instead of the other way around. So I'm optimistic about this. I'm, I feel like if I'm able to get the word out, I can convince people to jump on board. Absolutely. Absolutely. And speaking of active citizenship and participation in government, that brings us to the cabinet member we're going to be discussing. So Stacey opted not to hear who we were going to be talking about beforehand. So he is learning now that we are going to be talking about William Jones. Now, Stacey, have you heard of William Jones before? I have not. So uh, I did. I did volunteer to not be informed because I always prefer to hear to get my info from you uh, than anything I might learn on my own. And I guess what I can say at the outset is at least it's not John Smith. We're very close. It's a Jones, <laughs> <laughs> so a, a nondescript name. But uh, I have never heard of him. And so you're on. Let's hear about it. Absolutely. And. Even though, and I imagine our listeners don't really know much about him, but we've got some stuff to discuss. So, William Jones, let's start at the very beginning. He was born in Philadelphia 
in either 1760 or 1761. Yes, he is one of those folks that we don't even know what year he was born in. But the Naval History and Heritage Command has him as being born in 1760, but Edward Eckert, in a thesis on Jones, introduces the possibility that he was born in 1761. So, some dispute there. Also, in none of the sources that I consulted did I find any information on his parents or any other family. And so this is a first for the Seat at the Table series. We know really nothing about his background. <laughs> well, then we're in the right spot. But I, I think it I think it's important to know because um, you know, when we talked about the first Secretary of the Navy, there was also some question of where he was born, when he was born, where he went to college, if he went to college. And even even some of the better known names like Alexander Hamilton, like there's a dispute over what his birth year actually was. And when I think about that, I say, well, you know what? America really is a place where you can come from obscure backgrounds and, and make it pretty far. So uh, I find that as a, as a good thing to put a pin in as we go forward. Absolutely. And at least unlike Hamilton, because there's a span, because it's 1755 or 1757, I believe, if my memory is serving me correct, we at least have it narrowed down to at least one of two years. So. Right. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, we just don't know anything about William Jones's family. The biographical directory of the United States Congress notes that he, quote unquote, completed academic studies but provides no further information. He was also in his younger years, quote, an apprentice at a boat building yard on the Lehigh River in the Moravian community of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And that is pretty much all that we know about him leading up to the Revolutionary War. So when the Revolutionary War began, Jones joined a company of volunteers at the age of 16. He saw conflict in the battles of Trenton and Princeton. As noted by Eckert, Jones grew, quote, tired of the land war, and he signed up for naval service and served at sea as a privateer officer on the St. James under Thomas Truxton, who would end up becoming an acclaimed naval commander during the Quasi-War. Now, it was during this service that Jones was wounded and ended up as a prisoner at one point. He would be promoted to the rank of first lieutenant in 1781 and was commended, quote, for gallantry. After the war, William married Eleanor Young in 1783. Now, here we go again. She was born in either 1764 or 1765, which makes her either four or five years younger than William. So <laughs> we've got those age ranges again. The days before mandatory paperwork at birth. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I also did not find anything about them having children which is also kind of unusual for this series. You know, we typically, and especially for folks who are still, you know, that young, typically children are involved, but I wasn't able to find anything. It doesn't mean that they didn't have children. It's just the records just aren't there. Now, Jones moved for a time to Charleston, South Carolina, where he became a successful merchant. Eckert marks his years in Charleston as being between 1790 and 1793, and noted that he was, quote, active in the city's militia artillery battery, being elected to the role of captain in the militia, and, quote, wrote a manual for artillery drill. So 
starting to get, you know, he's, he's drawing on that experience of his military service during the Revolutionary War in this militia context. But in 1793, Jones moved back to Philadelphia and established himself there as a merchant. He also took an interest in politics and, in particular, the growing Democratic-Republican faction. Jones was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1800 and served in the 7th Congress from March 1801 until March 1803. At the risk of starting a trend here, I found no details about his tenure in Congress. (laughs) He was there. That's it. But at some point in 1803, Jones traveled to what was then known to Westerners as Canton, but was known for centuries by its residents as Guangzhou. When Jones returned to the U.S., he wrote to Secretary of State Madison, emphasizing, quote, how important a robust consular presence in Asia was in moments when the renewal of European war made the status of American property afloat particularly precarious. So this is a time, so this is during the Jefferson presidency, you have this guy advocating that we expand our foreign you know, diplomatic presence in East Asia. So I know, but I probably know better than to ask this, but do we know why he went to, to China, right? That's where he went. Do mm. we know why he went there? Well, and it's interesting because it's not as well talked about in the early Republic. You know, we, it, it's still going to be some time before we establish more, you know, official diplomatic relations with nations in East Asia but there were merchants that were operating in the Pacific, American merchants. They were operating in the Pacific arena. It wasn't as easy. Um, so one of the folks that I've read about in researching the Madison series, John Jacob Astor was actively engaged in trade with China at this time. And he wasn't alone. It was a very risky venture, to be sure, because this is, of course, a time over a hundred years before the Panama Canal. So you had to go either the Southern route around Africa and go that way, or go the Southern route around South America to get to the Pacific from the Eastern seaboard, long periods of time. And you would have possibly a year or so before you would hear anything about your ship. And so it was a very risky venture, but there were folks who wanted to engage in that risk because it was a lucrative trade if the ship made it back and you were able to sell the cargo. Likewise, being able to bring you know raw materials and things from the U.S. to be able to sell in East Asia that maybe it was resources that they didn't have. So it was a lucrative trade. It was just very risky, but there were people at the time who were engaged in it, and William Jones was one of those. I'm starting to get a picture of him, though, is that he he surely didn't lack courage um, from from his exploits in the war and from, you know what, I'm going to get on a boat and go to China. Um, (laughs) So I think that at least sets an initial impression of this guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. So this is, and again, like we don't, And there are going to be certain points, there are going to be certain things, I think, as we go along that we may just not be able to answer, but having that in mind kind of helps to give us some understanding and frame for where we have the gaps. So, you know, he did travel to East Asia 
He came back in January 1805. Jones was invited to join the American Philosophical Society and is noted as having, quote, read many papers before that body, including one on a lead casing for cannon shells. And so, again, kind of drawing on that military background and expertise, you know, and the American Philosophical Society. So, you know, this was an institution and they were interested in so many sciences, you know, and, and that was one of them, you know, this idea of practical uses for science. And, and the um, Philosophical Society was founded by Benjamin Franklin. Is that right? Yeah. And it was, and it was invitation only. Yeah. So uh, once again, uh, William Jones is no slouch. Yes. So that speaks to really his prominence and how, he has really established himself, and especially in a city like Philadelphia. So Philadelphia at the time, I believe it was still, I'm trying to remember exactly when New York surpassed it, but it was neck and neck with New York City. It was one of the leading cities in the nation. And we've seen, and we'll see with some other figures, uh, Richard Rush, who we haven't covered yet, but we'll get to Dr. Benjamin Rush's son. He struggled to establish himself in Philadelphia, but here you've got William Jones, who is very prominent, who is being invited to join this prestigious society. It really speaks to he is he's something. He is a major figure. He is somebody who is on the rise or may have been at the rise to begin with. We don't know his parents, so... <laughs> 1805 would see him enter a new business venture. As described by naval historian Christopher McKee, Jones became a, quote, peacetime master mariner to India and elsewhere. From 1805 until 1807, Jones circumnavigated the globe on a ship named the Plowboy. Eckert notes that Jones got, quote, involved in the Chinese opium trade for a little while during this time at sea. And so this may be something that, you know, once we get to kind of the scandal category, we may need to discuss, but that is one of the things that was prominent at the time and for decades afterwards was the opium trade. And there was much money to be made in that, unfortunately. And I guess also worth pointing out, it wasn't illegal at the time, right? It wasn't, it was perfectly legal. So, you know, like, like some of the other things that in retrospect are shady at the time he wasn't a drug dealer he was a legitimate businessman exactly yes it was a legal business it was a prominent business and jones was one of the people who made money from it so this was 1805 to 1807 circumnavigate the globe but when he returned home to philadelphia in 1808 he returned to a nation that was under a trade embargo which meant that the cargo that he had on board, which was worth $120,000, had to sit until June 1811, when Jones was finally able to send it to an agent in Russia to sell. By that point, quote, due to extra charges and storage costs, the deal was a bust. Even selling the ship itself for $47,000 was selling it for half of its original cost and did not satisfy the debt that he was accruing to try to make ends meet. And so we've discussed the Embargo Act on the podcast in the Jefferson presidency, but here we've got kind of a concrete example of the impact that this act had on 
merchants in the U.S. Right. That's a that's a huge hit. It's a long time to have your cargo just sitting around, and at the very end, it's a it's a fire sale, and you yeah you lose everything. Yeah, just trying to get anything you could, and it was a wash. And again, that speaks to you know the trade with East Asia and South Asia. It was it could be lucrative, but there were so many X factors, and the Embargo Act was one of those at the time. Well, and it sounds like he thought the hardest part would be traveling around the entire world to get his shipment. Uh, not so much. The, the real trouble is when you get home. Exactly. So, you know, that was going on for him. But meanwhile, upon his return home to Philadelphia after a couple of years at sea, it seems like Jones resumed his involvement in politics. So it's interesting, you know, you kind of have him going in and out of politics. You have somebody who was a U.S. representative, then circumnavigating the globe, then coming back and deciding, you know, let's get involved again. During a town meeting in 1809, Jones, quote, was chosen to present a letter of support to President Jefferson, assuring the chief executive of backing for the embargo and other restrictive laws. So that's interesting. You have to wonder if he, while delivering this letter, hey, Mr. Jefferson, could we possibly... No, no, okay, I'll I'll keep my cargo (laughs) in hold for now. (laughs) It's an interesting way to send your support for the embargo. (laughs) Yes. We're sending you, you know, official support, but the guy who's bringing the message has an axe to grind with your embargo. (laughs) (laughs) But this was a time that, you know, the embargo was widely unpopular. But this support for Jefferson and the administration at this challenging point in its history would ultimately pay off personally for Jones. Not necessarily with the cargo, but soon after this letter was presented, James Madison succeeded Jefferson as president, and the administration had Jones earmarked for a position in public service. I think that's probably the least that you can do for (laughs) holding this guy up. I just had the same thought. It's like, well, you cost me about $160,000, which is probably $2 million in today's money. So a government job would sort of help, you know, allay that. (laughs) Pay the bills for a little bit, at least. Right. So in 1810, Secretary of State Robert Smith approached Jones about an appointment as Charge d'Affaires to Denmark. Jones expressed his concern about having to neglect his private business in order to take up this public office, but President Madison met with Jones and assured him that this diplomatic posting, quote, does not require you to relinquish your present commercial establishment. And this is one of those points, and we've talked about this with other cabinet members. We think of ethics nowadays and trying to make sure that your private interests don't conflict with your public office. And in some cases, you know, folks putting things into accounts that they can't get access to or selling off stock or whatever, just trying to divest themselves from anything that would present a conflict of interest. But this was before that. This was the time when you had the attorneys general who were expected to carry on a private legal practice, including but not limited to cases before the Supreme Court. And this is another example of that. It was like, okay, well, even though you're a merchant who's involved with foreign trade, 
no, there's no conflict of interest for you being a diplomat abroad who may engage in that trade. And so that, you know, that makes me wonder about uh, scandals that derive from that sort of thing, you know, and if they hadn't yet happened, because it feels like it wasn't until maybe the Grant administration where people started to figure out, oh, wait a minute, you can use your government office to really uh, align your pockets. And I still feel like at this point in American history, I always like to say that we were we were in a time period where it felt like everybody not only knew what the right thing to do was, but was expected to just do it. Like your assumption was that I can appoint you to a government post and you're going to just do the right thing. Yeah. Well, and and to be fair, there were, you know, some isolated incidents. So Robert Smith, you know, we just mentioned him. There was a kind of scandal because his brother, Senator Samuel Smith, they were involved in a merchant house in Baltimore and they ended up with some government contracts. And so when that came involved, you know, there was an investigation. They had to prove, okay, no, we didn't personally benefit from this. So there were some scandals, but to your point, Stacey, it was really like the Grant administration where you really start to see this get kicked up because this was a time that that folks started. And and I think we'll see more as we go along with the series, you know, whether it's just the blatancy of it was just so huge that you couldn't ignore it if there was more happening there or if it was just a time that folks were saying you know we were demanding more right that that's an interesting uh, point not to go off on a tangent but it felt like there's a line that as long as you didn't cross it people were okay with whatever it was you were doing right mm-hmm. and so it wasn't a you know don't do something bad. It's just don't let it rise to the level of public scrutiny and don't get greedy. And as long as you kept it under wraps, so to speak, then we're okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we do have this and, and we see instances and we'll see a bit more as we go along with Jones, you know, we have some of these moments but in this instance, you know, even though he had that assurance, oh, well, you can keep on with your your commercial business on the side, that's fine. Jones decided to decline the offer. So he did not become the Chargé d'Affaires to Denmark. His next offer to join the administration came on March 29, 1812, when Comptroller of the Treasury Richard Rush wrote to Jones that he was being offered the nomination, quote, as Commissary General of Purchases under the War Department. So this one seems a little more, and especially given his background, it seems like something that Jones was a good fit for. And indeed, he was more interested in this post. But as this was a post that had just been created by an act of Congress, he only tentatively accepted it on April 1st on the condition that he could read the actual act to find out what the post entailed. He was like, this sounds interesting, but let's make sure we've got the details worked out. Make sure I'm clear on what I'm actually going to be doing. Rush wrote back on April 4th, informing Jones that his nomination had been confirmed by the Senate, but did not send a copy of the act. So on April 6th, Jones wrote to the man who would be his new boss, Secretary of War William Eustace, asking him for a copy of the act, while at the same time informing him that he was ready to travel to Washington. 
Before he could set out, though, he got a copy of the act. After reading it, he wrote to Eustace on April 20th, declining the position and asserting that it was, quote, a figurehead post loaded with responsibility but bereft of power. He's like, I actually want to be able to do something right, and not get blamed for things not happening when I don't have the power to actually do them. Right. It's it's like, and I think the reason he pressed for, to read the act was, that's a great sounding job title, but what am I going to be doing every day? And, you know, what kind of trouble can I get in here? So uh, he sounds like a pretty savvy guy. Yeah. Well, and, and you don't become a a merchant at the time and especially engaged in this, you know, risky venture without being savvy and knowing that the devil is in the details. And so Eustace wrote back to Jones asking him to reconsider and asserting that if he declined, the administration would have to quote, solicit others whose standing and characters are of inferior grade. Rush also wrote to Jones to try to persuade him or at the very least to get ideas for alternate candidates that they could approach, in particular, someone from Philadelphia. So, you know, Rush had his Philadelphia connections, but it was really seen as, you know, that's probably the place that you're going to have somebody who would really be a good fit for this post, given the industries that were in Philadelphia at the time. And are we still are we still at a point, because I remember in our earlier episode, there was a period of time where presidents were having trouble getting people to fill their posts. And and so it was, you know, it feels, are we still down to the, well, if you don't want this job, can you pick somebody that you know who might be a good fit for it? Are we still having a recruitment problem when it comes to those posts? With some, this one, and, and it's, it's interesting. It's kind of hit or miss. Like there are some that, okay, yeah, of course, everybody wants that, but then there are others and in particular, you know, we, in the John Armstrong episode, which is going to come out after this one, there was a bit of a struggle to find the right fit for Secretary of War, understandable since the nation was going to war and everybody looked at that and said, oh my gosh, I'm just going to be blamed because this is not going to go well. <laughs> so do you think, so I know like in the Washington and Adams administrations, they had problems getting full cabinet members. And so I'm wondering if by this point in our history, people are starting to think, you know what? Okay, the government of the United States is a going concern. It's uh, We're not going to fail after a decade or so. So when they say, would you like to be Secretary of State or Secretary of the Treasury? You know what? That's a real job and you can you can take that. And it feels like there may be a historical progression over time where even now the sub-cabinet posts are, are, are tough to fill. But you know, a little much, a little more time goes by, and all of a sudden, we get to where we are now, where these are jobs, and you can, and, and they're coveted jobs, and they're resume builders. Whereas at the time we're talking about, it may not have been a feather in your cap to have served in an administration. Exactly, and part of it was the expense. So, with cabinet members, of course, they were expected, except for the attorneys general, which that becomes an issue as well. For the attorneys general, it wasn't necessarily expected because it was technically a part-time job at the time. So you could not be in the nation's capital. They would just send information back and forth through post. But all the other cabinet members, you were expected to be on site 
especially when Congress was in session or you were preparing for the next session of Congress. And so you had to decide, am I moving my household, which means family, kids, whatever, establishing a new household? Were you going to be boarding somewhere? Either way, it was an expense. And there was somewhat of an expectation of being able to perform some social functions, you know, being able to host certain events, dinners, whatever, hobnobbing with folks. And that could be pricey because, you know, not only are you maintaining this home for what is a temporary position, you know, don't know if you're going to be there for a year, two years, eight years. You're also having to deal with your home, your actual home, your permanent home, and your business. And right. so that was part of the consideration. You had to have people who could actually afford that expense. I think, I mean, I think that's an interesting point for the whole seat at the table uh, series is just think about it from in pragmatic terms, right? You have to give up your day job, whatever your day job is. Uh, you have to relocate, but it's not a either or. You have to maintain your old residence because you can get fired. Four years isn't really a very long time. And if your president is in danger of not getting reelected, there's that. So it's a risky proposition. It almost feels like you have to be independently wealthy in order to commit 100%. And so the best news for prospective cabinet members, I think, going forward here is that Jefferson served two terms. Madison served two terms. Like there seemed to be some continuity until the 1840s where it all went bad. But for now, it was like, well... As long as I don't make him mad, I might have I might I might be able to stay here for eight years. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, you have Jones trying to think this through and he decides, you know, he wants to pass on this this commissary general position. But though Jones had thus far refused to join the administration, so he's he's been offered two posts and has said no to both of them, it didn't mean that he didn't support the administration. Jones actually came out in support of the war with Britain and was even open to the idea of war with France as well. And so this is something that we talked about a few cabinet members in the deliberations of going to war with Britain. You actually had folks saying, well, why don't we go to war with France as well? You know, they've been just as bad as Britain about, you know, seizing our property, taking things from us, disrupting our trade. So maybe we should just go to war with both of them. And even though that sounds ludicrous to us, and there were a few folks who, what, Neil, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you, are, I, I don't think we can handle war with one, much less two. But this was an idea that was floating around, and apparently Jones was kind of open to that. But definitely he wanted to go to war with Britain. I kind of, I mean, I just kind of like the, the moxie involved. You know, because we're at a point now where the Revolutionary War has been uh, in memory for 40 years at this point. We haven't had a major war. And, and our little forays, you know, the quasi-war worked out okay for us. And so you got to think that they're kind of feeling their wild oats now where they're like, oh, Britain wants to come back and try this again. Remember what happened last time. And oh, by the way, you know what? We beat them once. France wants to get involved. No problem. Like you really got to admire the let's go get them you know and i think that's a uniquely american thing well and and also one thing to note with this idea of declaring war against france so this was years after the battle of trafalgar france 
really didn't have much of a navy of which to speak. You know, they they were really more of a land based force at that point. And so what would it hurt to go to war with France? You know, were they they weren't going to send troops to the US and invade? What would it hurt? It was really Britain that we had to worry about with the navy and with Canada being right there. But even that, you know, Canada was sparsely populated. They had a limited force there. So you can kind of understand part of this moxie because even Britain wasn't well positioned on paper. We will see with the narrative series as well as some of these cabinet episodes how we managed to take what may have been a potentially good situation and completely... (laughs) completely mess it up right it's easy to get (laughs) cocky when there's a big ocean between you and your enemy but it can still not go your way (laughs) exactly so jones was a supporter of the administration he just these positions just weren't right for him but january of 1813 would present jones with another offer from the madison administration rather than being in the role of a minor functionary the president came to jones with the offer of a cabinet level position that of Secretary of the Navy. Now, this offer, Jones quickly accepted. He knew what Secretary of the Navy meant, and he traveled to Washington to assume his new post, and he left his wife and any potential family, you know, the kids are not if they existed, (laughs) in Philadelphia. So William Jones assumed office as the fourth Secretary of the Navy on January 19th, 1813. As described by Eckert, quote, He, i.e. Jones, had no great expectations and was neither impressed by his own office nor by the people he met in Washington. He knew his new position would be a difficult one and had no doubts as to the demands it would make on him. Still, he would take on this role with dedication and asked his friend, U.S. District Attorney Alexander J. Dallas, who will also get his own episode of the Seat at the Table series, quote, to compile a brief sketch of all the laws pertaining to the Navy, especially those relative to the powers of the department. And so again, you get from Jones this wanting to know the details, wanting all the specificities clear in his mind. Well, and and, you know, our last episode was about another Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Stoddard, and it feels like the Navy Department gets these guys, uh, you know, people who have experience with ships in a time where a lot of people didn't, where, you know, the conventional warfare was mostly on land and boats were how you got people there, except for a couple of big naval battles. And I like it. Jones seems to be the kind of guy who takes it seriously as like Stoddard did. I want to know what this job entails. I want to know what my boundaries are and I want to know what I can do with my office to do the job right. And I kind of like that. Well, and especially just giving the context of his predecessor, Paul Hamilton. So Paul Hamilton left office kind of in disgrace. There was a congressional investigation because Hamilton wasn't as detailed. And so the books were a mess. There were potential allegations of scandalous behavior, you know, okay, where is this money going? Do you have documentation of this? And so 
Jones is the kind of person like Stoddard that you want. You want somebody who's detailed. And it seems like Robert Smith, the second secretary of the Navy, was kind of along the same lines, you know, knowing, okay, well, this is what we do. This is how we keep things in order. You want that kind of person because you see with somebody like Hamilton, what happens when you don't have that in place? And particularly when you're going to war. And at this point, we're already in the war. This is January 1813. You've got to have somebody who can manage the house, who can make sure that things are happening, make sure that the ships are supplied, make sure that new ships are being built, make sure that the Navy is running, especially since we're fighting Britain and the world's preeminent Navy. And so um, from the beginning of the first administration, it seemed like there was always some hesitancy about the Navy. You know, John Adams was a big fan of the Navy. Thomas Jefferson wasn't, and it felt like getting it off the ground, literally, was a struggle. And so my, I guess my question is, at this point, is the Navy finally getting its props? Are they, are they finally being taken seriously and being seen for the, the kind of national asset that they could really be, in, in, even in times of peace? We're getting there. And okay. we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that as we go along, because Jones does do some things that help to move that along. But at the time, you know, it was understood that there was a place for the Navy and it was it was kind of important. There wasn't necessarily the understanding of how it would become important. And 1813 in particular is a crucial year for that. So, you know, Jones is new to this office. He wrote to his wife, Eleanor, in February that, quote, I perceive that my domestic habit have utterly unfitted me for a courtier for all this gives me pain instead of pleasure. So unlike other folks in government at the time, Jones didn't want to mingle in the social circles. He was like, I just want to spend time on business. I want to do what I need to do and then spend time with his family. He was like, just, I don't really need all of this hubbub and, you know, hobnobbing with folks. Now, Eleanor did eventually move to Washington to be with her husband but she would return for prolonged visits to Philadelphia often. When she did, Jones would ask her to bring back items from home, including, quote, two barrels of Snowden and Fisher's pale ale, a keg of nice pickled tripe, a barrel of nice fat mackerel, three or four pots of French mustard, and other foodstuffs. So <laughs> he, had, he was very particular about what kind of food he wanted to eat. Yeah, it's nice to see you. Did you bring my stuff? Did you bring my stuff? I need my things. In terms of the department that he took over, Jones would find it to be a relatively small one. As described by Eckert, quote, there were no naval advisors to the secretary. He was the department. Whatever had to be authorized or done, he authorized and did. To him reported the civilian superintendents or naval commandants of the six Navy yards as well as a fluctuating and widely scattered number of Navy agents. Each ship was usually an independent unit, its commanders receiving orders directly from the secretary. The system was as simple and embryonic as could have well been imagined. So this is a time, you know, we think of the military nowadays. This was not that. This was everybody reported in to the secretary. In the actual department headquarters at the time, Jones took charge, quote, The United States Department of the Navy had two offices, 
the secretary and his staff, and the accountants division. There were nine clerks in the former office and 11 in the latter. So this is a fraction, a small fraction of what we have nowadays. Now, the transition for Hamilton's Jones was not necessarily viewed positively by naval officers and sailors. As noted by David Fensens, quote, Further confusion and delay were caused by the appointment of William Jones as the wartime secretary. Because while Hamilton may have struggled when it came to developing strategy and in keeping up with the administrative details of the Navy Department, he was well-liked by the officer corps and seemed to have understood the human element of managing the Navy. So here you've got, you know, brass tacks, Jones coming in. You had Hamilton who, you know, they could relate to. And you've got Jones saying, I, I'm just all business. I want to make things happen. I don't really care about this socializing thing. And so it was an abrupt shift for the officers. I'm not sure about this guy. <laughs> well, because Hamilton was uh, shady, but a lot of fun. Exactly. And so, you know, we want to keep partying with him. Exactly. And Jones would learn an early lesson about what Edward L. Beach described as, quote, the touchy and divergent personalities of his captains. A few months after taking office, Jones in early May expressed his intention to Captain James Lawrence to assign him command of the USS Constitution. However, the captain of the USS Chesapeake fell ill, and Jones asked Lawrence to take command of that vessel while he assigned another captain, Charles Stewart, to the Constitution. Again from Beach, quote, Jones was a conscientious man who had not yet developed a sense of the many discordant lines of force for whose guidance he now held responsibility. He expected to run the Navy like the efficient business he had just left. He had no time for controversies with disaffected captains. So he's saying, you know, I've got, I want to put you in this ship, but we've got this one. The captain's ill. It's ready to go. Just go ahead and take over. What he didn't take account for, however, was that the Chesapeake was viewed as an unlucky ship and a lesser assignment than the Constitution. So Lawrence felt that he had been passed over unfairly. Yeah, does this sound like like this was something that Hamilton was good at? Yeah. Like Hamilton understood the personalities and, and maybe realized that in a Navy situation, as opposed to a private commercial enterprise, these guys really are little independent, uh, you know, masters of all they survey. And so they took it far more seriously. But when you're in business and it's like, hey, you're going to be running this ship now instead of this one. Well, it's your job and you just do it. And and I feel like, you know, this is one of those times where the demands and obligations of commerce do not align with the demands and obligations of government service or military service. Exactly. And that's spot on, Stacey. That's exactly what was going on here. He just saw, you know, the facts. Here we go. We've got a ship that I need a captain for. We're still trying to get this other ship ready. We'll assign you to this one and we'll get somebody else there, but not understanding the prestige of one ship versus the other. And so not understanding the human element of Lawrence saw this as a slight. In addition to not supporting his commander, Jones also pushed him to action sooner rather than later with an untried crew, which led to the fatal battle in Boston Harbor on June 1st, 1813, between the HMS Shannon and the unprepared Chesapeake. 
Not only was the Chesapeake captured, but Lawrence died from wounds incurred in the battle. Lawrence did at least contribute a phrase that would become famous to his contemporaries as well as future generations. Don't give up the ship. This is where that happens. And it's because of this, because of Jones assigning him to the ship that he didn't want that we get that famous phrase that would be taken up as kind of a call to battle. But he was right about the Chesapeake being an unlucky ship, wasn't he? And Lawrence was right. It was very unlucky for him, unfortunately. But despite this early setback, Jones would prove himself to live up to the president's expectations for him. As described by McKee, quote, not since the days of Benjamin Stoddard had a secretary of the Navy worked so hard. So here we have this invocation back to Stoddard, who, you know, we know Stacy was a powerhouse making things happen with the Navy. And Jones wrote to his wife, Eleanor, describing his daily routine as follows, quote, as to exercise, it is out of the question, except the head and hands. I rise at seven, breakfast at nine, dine at half past four, eat nothing afterward. At dinner, take about four glasses of good wine, but have not drank a drop of any kind of spirit since I have been here. I write every night till midnight and sleep very well when I do not think too much. Sounds like our daily lives, doesn't it? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> this This is somebody who is a workaholic. He is, you know, at it from the time he rises to the time he's going to bed, which again, at the time in, in thinking of this is such a small department and everybody's reporting to him to be able to keep up with things at a time of war, he had to. So, so one question is, um, and I'm not sure if you've studied this in depth, but was the army set up very differently? I mean, was there more staff, more, more resources, more people uh, compare, by comparison? So it's interesting, during the War of 1812, you start to get more of that. When it began, it was very much like this. But especially thinking of, you know, being able to supply, you know, at, at this point, we still had kind of the three-pronged attack trying to invade Canada. And this was over hundreds of miles of wilderness trying to keep all these forces supplied. They quickly realized we actually do need more of a system in place and more than just, you know, the secretary, maybe five people trying to make this happen. So they started to put some things in place with the army on that side in the war department. It would take a little bit for the Navy, but again, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go along. This was part of what Jones advocated for. He was like, this is unrealistic. You know, I can handle this. But not many people can. And it's just because of him, because he was so detail-oriented and so committed that he was able to make this work. But for most folks, for the average person, you're not going to be able to make this work. Now, in terms of the department itself, Jones came in and cleaned house. Again, from a key quote, by the 1st of January, 1814, with the exception of messenger Joseph Sutherland, not a single clerk who had served under any previous Secretary of the Navy remained on the office payroll. So he came in, and again, this is one of those things that 
was still being established at the time. You know, do you come in and appoint all of your people to these posts or do you just inherit? And at this point with the Navy Department, he had inherited a lot of folks, including Charles W. Goldsboro, who was a member of a prominent Maryland family who, except for the years of Jones's tenure as Secretary of the Navy, would serve as chief clerk of the Navy Department from 1807 until 1843. But this was the only gap in that service because Jones came in and was like, no, this isn't going to work. Now, Jones's biographer Eckert asserts that the removal of Goldsboro, quote, was simply a housekeeping move on Jones's part. And while he never felt that he had been involved in misconduct, in his role as chief clerk, Jones attributed responsibility, quote, for most of the department's confusion as he found it when he assumed command of the Navy Department, he attributed it to Goldsboro. Though one would have thought that being fired would turn Goldsboro against Jones, on the contrary, it seems that, quote, Goldsboro was apologetic to Jones and thanked the secretary for being as considerate as he had been in the process. Because to ease any financial burden for the outgoing chief clerk, quote, Jones even bought Goldsboro's Washington home as a mutual convenience to both. So here we see a side of Jones, you know, he at least, he understands doing business. He understands, you know, I know I'm, I'm cutting off your salary, but to kind of give you a golden parachute as you're going out, I need a home anyway. Apparently I'm going to be here for a little bit. You've got a nice home. You're probably going to want to go back home after this. Let's see what we can work out. That's a, that's a, he, he does come across as a fairly savvy operator, at least in this arena. Like he doesn't understand naval captain pride and and uh, sense of place. But this is a much more this is much more in his zone, where he he probably was able to say, well, if it was me getting fired, this would be what I would need in order to give me a soft landing. So. It kind of fits. Exactly. Well, and, and it's interesting. You know, it, this does seem more transactional. This does seem more business versus, you know, the, the instance with Lawrence where it was more about prestige. It was more, you know, this sociological thing. He doesn't really get that, but he gets transactions and business. Unfortunately, Goldsboro's successor as chief clerk would not bring the desired stability to the office. This clerk, Benjamin Holmans, quote, complained about the cramped space and bureaucratic jealousies with which he had to contend and ended up in a feud with another Navy Department clerk. So he was hoping that, you know, this would be a fresh start and ended up not being the case. And they didn't have very many clerks where they could afford feuds, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, you're probably going to be sitting right next to this guy day in and day out, and you're feuding. This is not going to create a good office environment. Beyond personnel issues, Jones also had to contend with the budget. Again, from Eckert, quote, there always seemed to be too great a demand for the money which the department had on hand. So this was a time in... We talk about this more when we talk about the uh, Treasury secretaries, but the nation's finances, it was struggling. The government, so this was 
after the charter of the Bank of the United States had not been, it hadn't been rechartered. There was no more Bank of the United States that they could draw on. And because we were at war with what had been the United States' largest trading partner, Britain, tariffs, that money wasn't coming in. So basically the revenue streams that you had, either you issue you know, treasury notes and bonds to be able to have people subscribe and get money that way, which you're eventually going to have to pay back. You arrange for loans with banks or you do taxes. And then as now, nobody likes taxes. So it was a struggle to be able to bring in income to be able to prosecute the war. And the Navy, as we've seen talking with previous Navy secretaries, it was expensive to keep up. You had these ships that were very expensive in terms of upkeep. So that was going to be a struggle for Jones. I feel like there's a an ongoing historical lesson that I keep finding all the way back to ancient Rome is wars are won by the treasury mm. as much as the army or the Navy or the soldiers, uh, because if you don't have the money to, to, to support it all properly, that will cause you to lose just as thoroughly as a military failure. Exactly. Exactly. And Jones realized that again, this man of business, he realized we've got to have the funds to be able to make this happen. And so while urging captains to be mindful of their expenses, Jones also lobbied Congress for additional funds. His efforts to carefully manage the budget that came his way did not go unnoticed. As Eckert remarks, quote, so competent had Jones become in handling the finances of the Navy Department that a year after he took office, Congressman Thomas Golson of Virginia commented on his economy in a speech before the House. So it was being recognized by Congress that, yes, this is a guy who's trying to be a good steward of the funds that we're granting him. Now, Jones would prioritize expenses and instruct the naval agents accordingly. Again, this was something that Jones realized this has to be managed and I've got to keep my hand on this because if I let go at any moment, expenses can run wild. Jones went after waste wherever it existed in naval operations. An example of this is that, quote, Jones proposed, instituted, and strictly enforced a regulation forbidding any commander to alter in any degree the vessels under his command unless by particular permission or order from the Secretary of the Navy. So he was like, you're not making any upgrades to your ship unless I say so. Jones would also work to scuttle the gunboats that the prior Jefferson administration had made the heart of their naval policy, concluding that, quote, the gunboats are a waste of money. And pretty much every naval historian <laughs> since has pretty much agreed, yeah, that was not a good idea. <laughs> and he made no bones about it. He's just like, this is not going to work and we're going to quit doing it. We are getting rid of those gunboats. Get out of here. Sorry, Jefferson, bad idea. But again, man of business, come in and say, this isn't working. Now, in terms of reorganizing the Navy Department's operations, and this gets to your point earlier, Stacey, Jones, quote, proposed that a board of naval officers be established to advise the secretary on all professional matters. As noted by Eckert, quote, this was the first time in the nation's history that any naval secretary had tried to plot a radical reorganization for the department 
and to suggest corrections for the deficiencies which had grown since the department's creation in 1798. So he's saying, he's coming in and saying, we need to restructure. This just isn't going to work. And oh, by the way, not only do we need, you know, boots on the ground, we need folks to actually be in the office, you know, shuffling papers and processing things. We also need people who are skilled at advising on policy. We don't just need the Navy secretary to just act on their own. And again, we saw this with Paul Hamilton. Paul Hamilton had no naval background. He didn't understand, you know, he wasn't a merchant. He didn't understand how to set naval policy because he didn't have that experience. Well, and is it, is it true at this point, because it sounds like it, like even with Benjamin Stoddard, that the Navy secretary is kind of in charge of strategy too. Mm. Like, and so it's like, I feel like we want, you know, actual sailors and captains and admirals to come up with strategy. I mean, why is this guy doing it now? You know, when Teddy Roosevelt was secretary of the Navy, he was he he was OK with that. He was fine with, you know, I'll, I'll move the ships around, too. But it's it's interesting that Jones had the, the self-awareness anyway to realize that your secretary of the Navy it shouldn't shouldn't necessarily be uh, a strategist that, you know, his his real value is administration and organization. Uh, he shouldn't be the guy telling the ships where to go and who to attack. And that's that's really quite something, I would think, to say, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at, and let's find people who are just the best at this to do this. Exactly. And that's that's exactly the point. And again, speaking from a business standpoint, he realizes, you know, he's not going to be Navy Secretary forever. And he can kind of muddle his way through, given his experience, but other folks are going to need that support. And even he could use that support because there are things that he doesn't know. He, you know, case in point with the Lawrence issue, he didn't understand the, the culture of the Navy officer corps. If he had had advisors, they would have said, this is a bad idea and here's why. So being able to have that and being able to think strategically with people who are experts that's important. And we saw that fail. Well, and he, and I, I kind of like his character in this regard because he didn't say, you know, I was right about Lawrence, you know, and I'm still right. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns in the decisions that I've made. I think that it, it almost feels like he recognized that this didn't go well and that he wanted, you know, for the sake of the department and the Navy to set up a system where, it wouldn't happen again that somebody would, would be able to, to do that right. And I think that's a good thing. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, here we have somebody who's really wanting to take this from being this, as, as the quote went earlier, this embryonic department to really refining it and making it a professional organization. Now, Jones also had to communicate to Congress and work with congressional committees related to naval operations. During his tenure of office, he submitted 14 formal reports to congressional naval committees, though, as Eckert notes, quote, about half of them were reports of naval battles, two concerned departmental reorganization, which we just discussed. Others included a register of naval personnel, the condition of Navy yards, and a report on the deficiencies in the naval appropriations. As Eckert explains, quote, 
Secretary Jones himself apparently tried to avoid dealing with Congress except when absolutely necessary, which I think is probably well advised. <laughs> I would say I, I feel like he, um, he had that one right for sure. <laughs> Quote, he felt that the legislature failed to provide the department with adequate funds and blamed it for some of the difficulties he had encountered due to the lack of money. As Jones wrote to Alexander Dallas in late September 1814 about his frustrations with Congress, quote, they have suffered the specie to go out of the country, adopted a halfway system of taxation, refused or omitted to establish in our time a national bank, and yet expect the war to be carried on with energy. So he's like, you're not giving us anything to work with, but we're just supposed to make it happen. What are you talking about here? Right. In terms of his relations with other administration officials, it seems likely that he spoke frequently with President Madison as there was little written communication between the two, though naturally, when Madison was out of town, letters between the two would pick up a bit. Though, unlike with other cabinet members, Jones focused in on sharing, quote, battle accounts rather than blending into personal matters or intellectual pursuits. Again, just strictly business. I don't care about the the hobnobbing chit chat. We don't need small talk. Just get down to business. Now, one cabinet member in particular that was key to developing a relationship with was, of course, the Secretary of War. And it seems like the two did maintain a good professional working relationship. As noted by Skaggs and Althoff, quote, Though there was no attempt to create inter-service joint commands, Secretary of State John Armstrong and Secretary of the Navy William Jones sought to secure cooperation between regional commanders while preserving departmental autonomy over the soldiers and sailors of the respective services. So this was a time that they weren't used to you know, having the Army and the Navy work together. And these were two completely different departments, two completely different branches. But they realized, and especially it comes to play when you're talking about the Great Lakes, they're going to have to work together. They're going to have to figure out how this works. You know, it, it's not the joint operations that we're used to in the present day, but they start to form these partnerships. And of course, Madison would encourage this because he realized, you know, having naval support while you're engaged in you know, trying to take a fort on the lake is going to be crucial. Now, for his part, quote, Secretary Jones saw no problem of relative rank between the officers of the various services. Instead, the problem was the issue of command, a subject of great delicacy that should be approached only with great caution. At that point, the highest rank in the army was that of either brigadier or major general, but in the Navy, the highest official rank was that of captain, though a captain could be given a temporary rank of commodore if he were put in charge of a squadron of vessels. So this is one of those points, and especially thinking about the importance of prestige in both of these branches of the military, you had on one hand, you know, these generals, and on the other hand, captains. And so they had to figure out how do we make this work? So as the Army and the Navy had to coordinate efforts and participate in joint operations, the concern was raised that Army officers were officially of a higher rank than the naval officers. Again, from Skaggs and Althoff, quote, 
Jones and Armstrong thought they had adopted the British Joint Operational Doctrine of Separate Commands and Mutual Cooperation. Jones at one point proposed that naval officers should be given a brevet rank or a field rank that would make them equal to the Army officers. But ultimately, the issue was resolved at the end of 1814 when the War and Navy Departments issued a joint order, quote, which established a relative rank between the services, although both agreed that officers of one service should not be allowed to command the forces of the other branch. So again, this is something that, you know, operationally, okay, you've got this person who's at a higher rank. Does that mean you know, that they command the Navy as well as the Army? And this was saying, no, they're two separate branches. An Army general cannot command naval forces. Though Jones recommended the creation of the rank of Rear Admiral, it wouldn't be until 1861 that Congress created this rank and subsequently awarded this promotion to Naval Captain Charles Stewart, the last living commander who had served in the War of 1812. <laughs> so bringing it kind of full circle there. Well, and that's that's what I wondered about, you know, because it seemed like even at the beginning of the Civil War, we still had the same problem with the Navy and the Army working together. And it seemed like it was Ulysses S. Grant who realized the value of the Navy, you know, at Vicksburg and some of his other operations. And he worked pretty closely with, with um, was it David Porter, uh, Admiral David mm-hmm. Porter? And so it's like, it, it kind of makes sense that this is around the time where they go, oh, okay, we need admirals. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so, you know, it, it's a shaky system. It's a shaky start, but it's a start. And you're starting to see some of these things that ultimately built up to the modern military being put in place during this war. Before this matter of naval ranks was agreed to, though, commanders on the ground had managed to work out the issue to get things done. You know, that they were like, you know, we can't wait for official guidance. We just need to go. So, They worked amongst themselves, figured out their arrangements, and especially in the Great Lakes region, like I said, this was crucial. They had to have this joint Army and Navy cooperation in order to make things happen, and they realized, we can't wait for word from Washington. Let's just figure out this thing for ourselves. And speaking of this Great Lakes region, though he would give that arena a greater emphasis than his predecessor, William Jones's strategy on the Great Lakes was the same as Hamilton's had been. The primary aim should be to establish American control of Lake Erie rather than Lake Ontario. As noted by Skaggs and Althoff, quote, like Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton had before him, Secretary William Jones urged Commodore Chauncey to concentrate on Lake Erie first. Commodore Chauncey, on the other hand, was more focused on action around Lake Ontario and had been coordinating with Brigadier General Jacob Brown, who was in command of the troops on the Niagara frontier, to that effect. Now, Chauncey did at least feel that someone should be assigned to the fleet on Lake Erie, and thus forwarded Secretary Jones an offer from, this may be a familiar name to you, Stacey, and to our listeners, Oliver Hazard Perry, who was then Master Commandant of a gunboat flotilla in Newport, Rhode Island, to travel west with 50 of his men to serve on the Great Lakes. And indeed, as Skaggs and Althoff note, quote, the secretary forwarded men to Chauncey from various vessels blockaded in eastern ports. Despite this augmentation of his complement of sailors, Chauncey continuously complained of manning problems 
for his enlarged squadron and delayed forwarding crewmen to Perry on Lake Erie. So, you know, you have at this point, and we had talked about in the Hamilton episode, part of the main concern at the beginning of the war was the British Navy is going to block up our ships and they're going to block them up in our harbors. And indeed, that came in place. You start to have naval ships who were just stuck in the harbor. And so Jones is saying, again, that business view of things, okay, well, they're not doing any good there. Let's transfer them to the Great Lakes so that they can actually do some good. But Chauncey still complained, oh, well, we need more. And instead of sending folks who were supposed to, who were earmarked for the Lake Erie squadron, which was what Jones wanted, he wanted that emphasized, Chauncey said, no, you're just going to stay here for a little bit longer. And oh, by the way, let me put you to work on my squadron. Chauncey revealed to Perry his intent to launch an attack on York and Kingston in Canada to secure Lake Ontario in the spring of 1813. Then his plan was to shift his headquarters west to, quote, join Perry as leader of the new Lake Erie Squadron to join up with General Harrison and work to regain Detroit and the lost territory in the west. Now, we should note that this was completely contrary to Secretary Jones's orders. But Chauncey felt that as commander in the field, he was the ultimate authority. He's like, this guy back in Washington, he doesn't know what's really going on on the ground. I know I'm really the one in charge. We're going to emphasize Lake Ontario. We're going to get that secured. Then we'll move on to Lake Erie in the West. So so here we go again with commanders in the field being like, um, I run the show on the water. We're just going to do what we want. Exactly. This independent command. Jones, however, had other ideas. He wasn't just going to accept this. He felt that supporting Harrison's efforts should be the priority. And thus, he started communicating with Perry directly, bypassing Chauncey. So even though Chauncey was technically the commander and Perry was under him, Jones said, and again, business. I just need this to happen. This is the guy who can make it happen. I'm just going to talk to him and stop wasting my time with this other guy. And it also feels like Jones fully understood that it was his responsibility and he was in charge. And so, you know, uh, the same way that he conveniently ignored the fact that Perry worked for Chauncey, he didn't ignore the fact that Chauncey worked for him. And so he can do things the way he wants to get them done. Exactly. Exactly. Now, of course, as you would expect, this caused the relationship between Chauncey and Perry to suffer. And at one point, Chauncey stopped communicating at all with the commander on the Lake Geary front. So Chauncey is having a little bit of a temper tantrum and it's like, I'm not going to talk to you. But when Perry joined Chauncey for an assault on the British controlled Fort Erie in Lake May, the two patched things up. So he was like, okay, let's give the baby his bottle. He's really, he really wants to attack Fort Erie. Let's just go ahead. I'll help you out. And Chauncey finally transferred ships to Perry's Lake Erie fleet so that operations on that front could proceed. And we'll circle back around to that in a moment. Back in Washington, Starting in May 1813, with the position of Treasury Secretary being declared vacant by Congress due to Albert Gallatin's diplomatic mission in Europe, which was something that we discussed in Gallatin's episodes, J. 
Jones was asked to serve as acting secretary of the treasury. So in addition to being in charge of the Navy department, now at least temporarily, he was in charge of the treasury, which put Jones in the position of requesting the authority to raise an additional $7.5 million from Congress beyond what had already been granted in order to raise new troops and fund the war effort for the first quarter of 1814. In less than two weeks, they agreed, and Jones began to make plans for the initial advertisement for this new loan. Ultimately, this effort would raise $6.62 million, though, as with previous loan efforts, the securities had been sold at less than face value. And in this case, though, they were so desperate for funds because basically these were kind of what we would think of as promissory notes. You know, I'm going to pay you this much. So for a $100 bond, so we will pay you back $100, but the bond was sold for $88.25. But we're going to pay you back $100, even though you're only giving us $88.25. But they needed the money, got to do what you got to do. During this tenure as acting head of the Treasury Department, Jones would become acquainted with prominent banker Stephen Girard of Philadelphia. And this will come back into play. Let's stick a a pin in that name. This will come back. Jones would struggle with the additional duties of this acting post and had to be reminded by a treasury clerk at times about documents awaiting his signature in that office. So he was already under strain trying to deal with naval affairs. And now he's in charge of the largest department of the federal government and trying to manage that as well. It's a, it's a testament to the confidence they had in him that, uh, or, or that he was, uh, you know, the guy you call when you're in trouble. Exactly. Exactly. It also didn't help that most of his administration colleagues were away from Washington in the summer of 1813. So <laughs> he's just got a left in charge. President Madison was recovering from a severe illness back in Montpelier, while Secretary of State Monroe was at his home in Virginia, and Secretary of War John Armstrong was at that point on the Northern Front directing U.S. troops as they continued to prepare for an invasion of Canada. This left Jones for months not only taking care of two departments, but also relaying information as it came in to other top administration officials. This was not a good few months for Jones, and by December, Jones had had enough, and he told President Madison that other arrangements had to be made for the Treasury Department. So, by February 1814, George W. Campbell was in place as the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, and we'll learn more about his tenure during his episode. So, meanwhile, over at the Navy Department, as noted by Jones' biographer Eckert, quote, William Jones had the power to control a great deal of patronage, and he was not afraid to use it. He made certain that his own friends and relatives were given government business or positions. So, again, we kind of get back to that, the blending of the personal and the public office. But this wasn't necessarily unusual at the time, as administration officials often turned to people they could trust, which was typically family members and close friends and associates, to staff their departments. Indeed, in terms of his own situation, Eckert notes that, quote, Jones himself not only made no fortune from his position, but he fell into bankruptcy because of it. 
So even though he was helping folks that he knew, he personally wasn't benefiting from it. While managing the Navy Department, Jones also attempted to keep up with his personal business, but as noted by Eckert, quote, what credits he did have were tied up in Europe and could not come home while his creditors at home pressed him for payment. So again, we're kind of getting back to that idea of, you know, here's somebody who's involved in, you know, foreign trade at a time of war when all that was on hold. And so his assets were in Europe that he couldn't get to. Meanwhile, he had debts in the U.S. that were demanding payment. He wrote to a friend in April 1813 that, quote, After all my toil and trouble and the immense sacrifice of feeling and interest I have made, I shall not, at my advanced time of life, have a shilling left. My public situation is the only thing that gives me pain under these circumstances. But the moment peace returns, and I do not believe it very remote, I shall return to private life and to business. I still hope to spend the residue of my days in that peaceful retirement which I've ever sought with sincere desire. So he's saying, you know, here I am, I'm working my tail off, I am burning the midnight oil, and I don't have a penny to my name, but I have hopes once all this is done and I'm able to really think about my affairs, I'll be able to get things back in order, be able to make everything work. And he's not even suggesting that he might quit. He's not even suggesting that he might quit at this point. So speaking of that public life and returning to the Great Lakes front, despite the recent thaw in the tensions between them, ultimately Chauncey started withholding men and resources that had been designated for the Lake Erie fleet again in order to support the continually stalled operations on the Niagara front. So Chauncey is still determined this is this is going to work, but nothing's happening. And meanwhile, all these resources and and manpower is just locked down where it could be used on Lake Erie. Perry would challenge Chauncey on this, and ultimately Secretary Jones, quote, upgraded Perry, giving him combat command of the lake, i.e. Lake Erie, without telling Chauncey. Now, military historian Colonel David Fitzance concluded the quote, it was amateur of Jones to intervene between serving officers at that critical point and could have led to resignation and disaster. So, again, going back to this idea, from a business standpoint, Jones is saying, okay, Perry's the guy who's actually going to make this happen. Chauncey isn't doing anything. If he needs this elevated command, so be it. Just take it. But from a cultural standpoint in the military, this is pitting one officer of inferior rank against his superior officer, that's a big no-no. And at a time of war, that can be a crucial, that can be the end of everything. Now, I would argue, you know, while yes, this could have been disastrous, if Jones hadn't made this move, the critical naval battle on Lake Erie, which happened on September 10th, 1813, which proved to be a decisive American victory and opened up that front to Harrison retaking Detroit and invading Canada, that battle could not have happened if Jones had not intervened at this point and said, Perry, just do the thing. Just 
You've got whatever authority you need. Just make it happen. So, so uh, along those lines, um, I've I've recently been steeped in the revolution in in the episodes that I've been doing for my show, and it felt like the Revolutionary War was a system where if you could do it, then we'd let you do it. Like Henry Knox, mm-hmm. um, Nathaniel Green, um, relatively inexperienced military officers who were serving with with guys who had a lot more military experience, but George Washington in particular would say, if you're going to be successful, I'm going to give you all you need to get the job done. I'm wondering if, you know, because a lot of these cabinet members were veterans of the revolution, they saw that, you know, what works is the guy who decides to do it and goes and does it. And so I don't care if he's a, if he's a lieutenant or a captain or whatever, if he says he's going to do the job, I'm going to, I'm going to give him the authority to do it and see what happens. Exactly. And that's, you know, it was just, we need to make things happen and Chauncey isn't doing it. So Perry do it. And he did because this is the famous battle from which came Perry's quote from his brief note to Harrison right after the engagement quote, dear general, we have met the enemy and they are ours. As described by Skaggs and Altoff quote, the entire flotilla was in American hands. It was one of the rare times in British history that the Royal Navy lost an entire squadron. Again, from Skaggs and Altoff, quote, Although expressing a certain amount of hyperbole, Secretary William Jones described the achievement of Perry and his men as a victory so transcendently brilliant, decisive, and important in its consequences as to elicit demonstrations of joy and admiration among his countrymen throughout the nation. This victory and the subsequent invasion of Canada, which led to the Battle of the Thames, where Tecumseh fell, was a much-needed victorious campaign which provided political breathing room for the Madison administration that had been under intense pressure after defeats and stalled campaigns. So this was crucial not only from a military standpoint, but also from a political standpoint. This needed to happen, and if Jones had not made that call, it might not have happened. Now, when intelligence came to the Madison administration that British forces in Canada were planning on striking the U.S. through Lake Champlain, which is, of course, the large lake bordered by Quebec, New York, and Vermont, Jones sprung into action to reinforce the naval fleet on that lake under the command of Thomas McDonough. This resulted in the Battle of Lake Champlain on September 11, 1814, which repulsed the British advance. Though it was not a decisive victory, As noted by historian William S. Dudley, it, quote, did influence the opposing governments by demonstrating that the war could last a bit longer, and this became a matter that was concerning to both Britain and America. Neither nation could afford to carry on the war for another year. So we've got some key points that are happening that the Navy is involved in. Meanwhile, back in Washington, Jones submitted a report to a congressional committee on July 1st, 1814, in which he concluded that he felt a British attack on Washington, D.C. was unlikely, as, quote, the only important objects in the city, according to my view, are the Naval Depot and public shipping. So, again, business point of view, what assets do we have here? Those are really the only important ones, right? Uh, he, He had a real blind spot for intangibles, it seems like. Yes. Like, he... He he totally missed the whole, the way that military leaders uh, think and their pride and all that. 
And he didn't see Washington, D.C. as a symbolic uh, strategic objective for the British. He was just like, well, there's nothing here. So why would they come? <laughs> Look around. It's not a real city. Why would they come here? Nothing to take here. Nothing to take here. And, and yes, so missing that strategic importance, that symbolic importance of the nation's capital. And to be fair, Secretary of War John Armstrong was fervently saying at this point, no, there's no danger to Washington. Baltimore's where we need to worry. So he also has that reinforced. You know, his close colleague is saying this is a non-issue. Now, of course, as we know, and I'll wait until Armstrong's episode to really talk about, you know, what happened with the burning of Washington, the the British invasion. But suffice it to say, Jones was around during this time. Of course, the British did invade. There was a slight effort made to defend. And in order to aid the defense effort, Jones ordered Commodore Joshua Barney to provide the army, quote, with ordnance from naval vessels and ordered the 500 sailors and 120 Marines in Washington to cooperate as closely as possible with the army. But this defense effort went nowhere. The British were coming. And so with the British pressing on the nation's capital, Jones ordered Thomas Tingey, quote, to destroy all the public stores, buildings, and ships at the Navy Yard in the event of the capture of the city. So the British came. They burned many of the public buildings. It was a fiasco. After the fact, William would write to his wife Eleanor on September 7th of Armstrong and assert it as follows, quote, He is full of venom, but without a sting. Though I abhor the means employed to coerce the president to dismiss him, I am glad we are clear of him, even for the short time I remain. So we'll talk more about what happens with Armstrong. The reception of him after the burning of Washington was not good. And so you have Jones even saying, this guy needs to be out of here. But note that last little line about the short time I remain. Because ultimately, pressure came on Jones to deal with his personal finances. As noted by Eckert, at the end of his tenure in the cabinet, quote, Jones's credits amounted to $29,692 and his debts to $47,000 or a net debit of $17,308. He was in the red in a big way. He had to figure some things out. He initially approached Madison on April 25th, 1814 about his desire to leave the Navy Department to deal with personal business, but... Madison talked to him. Jones agreed to stay on until the next congressional session. As happened in Washington, word leaked out to the public that he intended to leave office. So finally, on September 11th, 1814, so this is just after the burning of Washington, Jones submitted his official letter of resignation to President Madison. This was accompanied by a private letter in which he explained the circumstances in which he found himself. As he wrote to Madison, quote, Mere abstract poverty is nothing but sensibly alive to those principles of integrity and punctuality which have guided my whole life, the inability to meet my engagements and to avert the inconvenience and possible loss which may accrue to those who are immediately liable for my obligations is painful in the extreme. My own afflictions are rendered still more poignant by the contemplation of the savage warfare now waging against our beloved country and my inability to serve her under the 
irresistible embarrassments of my private affairs. So this is an honorable man. He is saying, you know, I really want to serve. I know this is the worst possible time, but I also have these obligations that I've made to others. I need to sort this out. And he would be distracted. He would be, you know, he would be worried about his debts and his personal affairs. And uh, it kind of sounds like he wouldn't be able to commit fully to the job. Yeah. And so he realized this is just, this is something I need to do. And by this point, Madison had already responded to his initial note in April, indicating his wish to resign. And Madison had asserted, quote, I cannot let the present occasion pass without expressing the gratification I've experienced in the entire fulfillment of my expectations, large as they were, from your talents and exertions, and from all those personal qualities which harmonize official and Sweden social intercourse. To these assurances, permit me to add my best wishes for your success in everything that may conduce to your prosperity and happiness. To his wife, Eleanor, William wrote on September 20th, quote, Much joy to my successor, whoever he may be. I hope he may acquire honor for himself and fame for his country. But instead of a wreath of laurels, he has a much greater chance of acquiring a crown of thorns. The truth is that our government is so constituted and public sentiments so-called, so capricious and arbitrary, the high public officers are liable to be arraigned and tried and condemned by a species of revolutionary tribunal, which, though it does not strike off the head, stabs the more noble and vital part, the reputation. So he is saying, you know, we are really striving hard and we are under such intense scrutiny that this makes this a very thankless job. (laughs) Now, though he had already submitted his resignation in his last few months in office, Jones did what he could to wrap up business and leave the department in a good place on his way out. On October 15th, 1814, Jones had to appeal to Madison for assistance with securing public funds for naval operations as Congress appeared unwilling to act. As he explained to the president, quote, I'm destitute of money in all quarters. Seamen remain unpaid, and the recruiting service is at a stand. If the salvation of a city depended upon the prompt transportation of a body of our seamen, I have not a dollar. And again, we'll see more in George Campbell's episode. This was a time of strain for the administration. There was literally nothing left in the treasury. In November 1814, Jones sent his proposal for, quote, the reorganization and extension of the Navy, the establishment of a board of inspectors, and a Naval Academy to the Senate for its consideration. Jones stressed from personal experience that, quote, the duties enjoined, or which necessarily devolve upon the Secretary of the Navy, are beyond the powers of any individuals to discharge to the best advantage. Though by great labor, with adequate professional qualifications, he may possibly execute general and most essential branches of duty with tolerable success. So he's saying, you know, this is an impossible job. You really need to reorganize. There needs to be more support for this department. Now, for the Naval Academy, he recommended that it have, quote, suitable professors for the instruction of the officers of the Navy in those branches of the mathematics and experimental philosophy 
and in the science and practice of gunnery, theory of naval architecture, and art of mechanical drawing, which are necessary to the accomplishments of the naval officer. As described by Eckert, quote, no man had ever before drawn up such a statement on the Navy Department. William Jones had used his years of experience in shipping, sailing, and management to prepare a clear, detailed, and specific set of recommendations for improving his department. Because of this paper, Jones's influence would be felt by the Navy Department for a long time for the betterment of the service. Now, the House of Representatives requested comment from the senior naval captains on Jones's report, and quote, with unanimous resolve, all agreed in general with the Secretary's proposals. One of the immediate changes from Jones's recommendations was the abandonment of the 15-year-old Book of Naval Regulations, which, quote, constituted little more than 36 pages of admonitions in favor of a, quote, new 147-page manual compiled by the recently established Board of Naval Commanders in 1815. This manual would be the authority for naval regulations for over 30 years. And of course, as I just said, the recommended Board of Naval Commissioners would be established shortly after the end of his tenure. So short-term, already putting some things in place. Long-term, they're going to turn back to this plan of this is the direction that we need to go. But finally, on December 1st, 1814, after a busy two years, William Jones left the Navy Department. As McKee concluded, quote, William Jones was a strongly positive force in naval administration, but his long-term influence on the development of the Navy's officers was restricted. If Jones had an effect on the officer corps at all, it was the negative one of temporary estrangement between the professionals and their civilian leader. For this condition, the Secretary's personality was at fault. Sure of his own abilities and opinions, haughty, reserved, and abrasive in his relations with his subordinates, Jones managed to alienate a broad spectrum of people during his less than two years in office. One of those administrators who were happier dealing with papers than with people, Jones tended to isolate himself in his room on the second floor of the Navy office, where, with his door jealously guarded by the chief clerk, he quickly developed the reputation of being a most difficult man to see. Which kind of fits with what we talked about thus far. You know, he's really more about the business aspects, making things happen, versus the touchy-feely developing relationships. Eckert had a more positive summation of Jones's tenure when he wrote, quote, In two short years, William Jones had taken a rather chaotic organization and turned it into a functioning bureau. After leaving office, a public dinner was held in Jones' honor in Washington, D.C. So at least some folks did realize we need to honor this guy. He really has done something good. But as stated, he devoted his efforts to, after leaving office, to getting his personal finances in order. But this would not be the end of his public service career because on October 28, 1816, the stockholders of the Second Bank of the United States, which had been chartered, finally, Congress agreed again, yes, we do need a Bank of the United States. They held their first election of directors for the bank. Now, this is that guy that I told you to stick a pen in his name. Philadelphia banker Stephen Girard described this election as follows, quote, Intrigue and corruption had framed a ticket for 20 directors of the Bank of the United States 
who appear to have been elected for the purpose of securing the presidency to William Jones. Given his tenure as acting Secretary of the Treasury, as well as his friendship with his cabinet colleague, Alexander J. Dallas, who had succeeded in leading the Treasury Department after the brief tenure of George Campbell, William Jones, of course, emerged as the top candidate for the post. But Gerard, by this point, was opposed to the direction of the bank, which he felt was more decentralized than he thought was wise. As described by historian Donald Adams Jr., quote, the plan adopted by the bank was to have each branch raise its own capital and issue its own notes payable at any other branch, including Philadelphia. So kind of an odd structure and especially, you know, how banking practices are nowadays. Girard was in a position where he could actively work to make changes in the leadership of the bank. And he wrote around the time that, quote, I intend to use my means, activity, and influence to change and replace the majority of the present directors by honest and independent men. So this sets a prominent banker up against the president and leadership of the Bank of the United States, the National Bank. And of course, the duties that Jones would face as the new bank's first president were immense. We'll talk about more in more about this in his episode, but at the end of November 1816, the new Secretary of the Treasury, William Crawford, and yes, you're seeing a rapid succession of Secretaries of the Treasury, and we'll talk more about why in their episodes, but Crawford wrote to Jones about the resumption issue, which was basically the resumption of banknotes being exchanged for hard specie currency by state banks. Of course, this had been suspended during the War of 1812 due to the economic uncertainty of the time. Crawford wrote to Jones asking about, quote, the Bank of the United States' potential for supplying a national currency without the aid of the state banks, as the state banks were unwilling to restore specie payments until July 1st, 1817, which continued to prolong the crisis in national fiscal stability. To his credit, Jones called a meeting with representatives of large banks from the Northeast on February 20th, which resulted in, quote, an agreement to resume specie payments on February 20th, which was highly favorable to the state banks and to the Treasury, but which set the Bank of the United States on the road to near disaster. The Bank of the United States became responsible to the government for public deposits held by the state banks, but agreed not to use or transfer those funds before July 1st. At the same time, it pledged itself to meet government demands on these deposits. The article guaranteeing mutual protection meant that the Bank of the United States had for all practical purposes assumed a unilateral obligation. So basically they took on all the responsibility for all of these debts and obligations and really had no way of meeting them. <laughs> yeah, William, he doesn't pick easy jobs, does he? No, he doesn't. He, he is somebody who takes on a challenge. And in this case, it wasn't a good fit because to Gerard's point, Jones was not well suited to this new post. As Jones' biographer Eckert describes, Jones, quote, was over his head in this capacity. His knowledge of banking was minimal and the chief reasons for his appointment political. 
He soon became involved in the intrabank squabble and was implicated in some shady stock transfers. And indeed, a little over a year after it began its operations, the Bank of the United States, quote, was on the verge of bankruptcy. Though he held on for a bit and Crawford did what he could to help to ease the pressure on Jones and the Bank of the United States, in January 1819, Jones resigned from his leadership position at the bank. Upon leaving the bank, Jones returned to private commercial pursuits, and he entered into a partnership with Joshua and Samuel Humphreys to form a new company to build steamships. Jones was also given a new position by President John Quincy Adams as the collector of customs for the Port of Philadelphia in 1827. He would hold this office until 1829 when he was replaced by the new president, Andrew Jackson. Sadly, his wife Eleanor passed away on February 27, 1828, at the age of 63, according to her tombstone. Given the conditions of Philadelphia in the summer of 1831, where a contagious fever was spreading like wildfire, Jones opted to make his way to the Pocono Mountains. Unfortunately, it seems that he had already contracted the disease, and thus, William Jones passed away at the Sun Inn in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, on September 6, 1831, at the age of either 70 or 71. He was interred in St. Peter's Episcopal Churchyard in Philadelphia with his wife, Eleanor. Now, as we've seen before with the story of William Jones, we are at a little point of contention here with the sources. Because Eckert, writing in 1969, asserted that Jones had requested to be buried at the Moravian Church's cemetery dubbed God's Acre in Bethlehem. He said that he could find no evidence of Jones being buried at St. Peter's and that, quote, it seems inconceivable that the corpse of a man who had died from a contagious fever during an epidemic would be shipped over 60 miles in the summer for burial. However, on findagrave.com, there are pictures of a gravestone that looks to be that of our William Jones from St. Peter's Episcopal. Now, I guess that just means I'm going to have to go back to Philadelphia to verify this, but given what I know of burial practices of the day, Jones may have originally been interred in Bethlehem and then later reinterred to be with his wife, Eleanor. So family members or, or close associates may have made that happen. Now, we do have some points of legacy, because years after leaving office, former President Madison wrote to Henry Lee in February 1827 about his experiences during the War of 1812 with commentary on the men who had made up his cabinet. He had the following to say about Jones, quote, I must be allowed to express my surprise at the unfavorable view taken of the appointment of Mr. Jones. I do not hesitate to pronounce him the fittest minister who had ever been charged with the Navy Department. With a strong mind well stored with the requisite knowledge, he possessed great energy of character and his indefatigable application to business. I cannot doubt that the evidence of his real capacity, his appropriate acquirements, and his effective exertions in a most arduous service and the most trying scenes now to be found on the files of the department as well as my own, would reverse the opinion which seems to have been formed of him. Nor in doing him justice ought it to be omitted that he had on his hands the Treasury as well as the Navy Department at a time when both called for unusual attention, and that he did not shrink from the former 
for which he proved himself qualified, till the double burden became evidently insupportable. So that's high praise coming from his former boss. The destroyer USS William Jones was named in his honor. This ship, a Clemson-class destroyer, was launched in April 1919 and was commissioned in September 1920. It mostly saw service in the Pacific Ocean in its 10-year tenure, but as part of the Treaty of London of 1930 on naval armament reductions, it was decommissioned in May 1930 and sold for scrap nearly two years later. But that was really all I could find for a legacy for William Jones. And with that, Stacy, what are your initial impressions of the life and career of this man? I would say pretty good. And it seems like the Navy Department in the early days of the U.S. seems to attract these kind of pragmatic, no-nonsense, goal-oriented fellows who don't necessarily rub people the right way and kind of set themselves up for criticism, whether they deserve it or not. And uh, it seems to be a facet of people who are getting a thankless job done under terrible conditions. And it feels also like at the time, uh, just in the, in, in political thought, the army was where the stars were and the Navy was not as highly regarded. Right. So, you know, being secretary of the Navy was neither a, uh, a position of, of social prominence or even in the public mind. Um, but they had a hard, a very difficult logistical job, strategical job to do, and they and they didn't really get a lot of help. And when you factor in the fact of the way the United States government financed its operations at the time, he was really fighting an uphill battle, and he didn't quit. I mean, he didn't give up. He kept, I mean, even after he resigned and it was accepted, he was still pushing for reforms. He was still trying to get money out of Congress. Uh, his idea for a naval academy is, uh, you know, now it almost seems like a like an obvious fait accompli, but at the time, you know, he had to push for it. So overall, I mean, overall, I kind of, I kind of like, I kind of think he was a good guy. And so let's kind of zoom out for a moment and start with our whole picture category. So this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member. So this is, you know, from beginning to end. And so we can each award up to 10 points total. And, you know, we've seen, and yes, we've got these gaps in his story, but this is a pretty, there's some pretty interesting stuff even outside of his cabinet career. Right. I'd agree with that. And, and, you know, so the real question is, does it work to his favor to have these gaps? Or not, because when you look at at some historical figures where we pretty much know everything about, like John Adams, who made a daily diary entry and wrote, you know, hundreds of letters, it's like, it sometimes it feels like the more information we get about you, the the worse you come off. Um, mm-hmm. And so there are parts of his of William Jones's life, like the opium trade and um, some of his business dealings, maybe that where he might have not have covered himself in glory, but at the same time, there's no record either way. So I, I, you know, I don't want to hold that against him. Yeah. He seemed like a principled guy who committed to doing what he had to do. And it feels like he tried to do the right thing in every case as he saw it. Yeah. So I'd, I'd give him pretty high points for that. I'd, 
I'd give him a nine. I'm going to go a little below. And I think for me, mainly thinking of his tenure as the president of the bank of the United States, I mean, in just over a year, he led it to near disaster. So that's definitely got to take, that was not a successful part of his career. True. But in business, it does seem like, you know, there were some extenuating circumstances, but he did have some good success. And it seems like if he, almost if he hadn't become the treasury, the the, um, secretary of the Navy, he may have been able to be even more successful as an individual, but it's because of that Navy post that we're talking about him today. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not a complete failure of a career. It could have gone a bit better, but we have to acknowledge some of his successes in life. And so I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him a, I think I'm going to go with a seven. So let me ask, let me ask this about that. It feels like in his case, there's always the conflict between willingness and capability, right? Mm. And it seems like he was very heavy on the willingness side. If somebody wanted him to do a job, he would say, okay, well, I'll take that job and I'll do it to the best of my ability. Now, he clearly was much better at the Navy Department than he probably was at the Treasury or at the bank. But you know, part of my justification for, for the points is he didn't say no. And it seems like even in the, in the case of the bank, it's like, wow, we really need, you know, this is really falling apart. And, and so I think he may have saw himself, seen himself as a fixer, as, as the guy you call when you're in trouble and he's going to do the best he can. So where I, where I ding him uh, for that is there are times in his tenure as secretary of Navy where he seemed to have the self-awareness when he was in over his head. But that didn't go with him to the bank, you know. So, so at the Navy Department, he's like, "All right, I need a board of experts to advise me on the on the things where I have shortcomings, where I just I don't understand how it works." But as president of the bank, having no banking experience and not really understanding how it was supposed to work, that's the time you need you need some experts to come along. And he didn't do that. And so, you know, you've got to you've got to ding him for that because. If he had used the same methodology at the bank that he had at the Navy Department, that might have gone differently. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and you just wonder, and again, this would require more research. And that's unfortunately one of the things that, that William Jones lacks. You know, you heard all the disparate sources that I pulled together, and I had the one thesis on him that was really focused on him. Everything else, it was a book about something else. And so trying to piece together his life and career, this is definitely one of those figures, just like Benjamin Stoddart, somebody who's looking for a research project. This is the guy, right? You know, there is so much more that I'd like to know. Why didn't he approach the position at the bank along these lines? And hopefully there's more out there, but yeah, I I think, you know, overall good career, but definitely some points that, you know, we do have to ding him on because we saw he could do better. And speaking of that, let's go into our go-getter round and really talk about what I think is going to be, you know, we've got a lot of evidence and most of it works in his favor. 
The go-get-around is the round that we look at the impact of the cabinet member during their time on the cabinet. And again, just like with the last round, we can award up to 10 points possible. I'm really leaning toward 10 here because in his role as Secretary of the Navy, he was motivated by two things that we absolutely needed. One is doing the job as it exists, uh, given the circumstances of the time. So I have to run the Navy Department as it is today with all of its structural deficits, with all of its personality problems, with uh, clerk feuds and no money. And so he he tried his best to do that. It's it's not like he phoned it in. He was working till midnight like he he did it. But at the same time, he used his unique position of as head of department to identify the flaws and to recommend institutional changes to make it better for the next secretary of the Navy and all the secretaries of the Navy from then on. So uh, for me, I'd give him a 10 because he did both of the things that had to be done. And I think both of the things that any cabinet secretary in the early days of the Republic had to do because everything was theoretical until the first day you show up to work as a cabinet secretary, you know, like uh, the secretary of state used to be in charge of patents and things like that. Like we needed the best people possible to refine these cabinet posts so that they would be uh, focused on what their mission really was supposed to be, that they would be good at it and that they would build an institution because I think the our country in most countries uh, rely on their institutions to prosper and survive. And so you don't want just a guy who's like, oh, well, so this is my job and I'm just going to do it. You want a guy who has the, who is able to look around and go, we can make this better and it will take time. And I won't be the, I won't be the beneficiary of it, but the country will. And that's worth doing. And I think he nailed that. Yeah. So I'm going to go a little below, but not much. I'm going to give him a 9.5. And the only thing that I'm taking out, I mean, this was, and you think about this, this was just shy of two years. And this is a complete reversal of where the Navy Department was going. And he had such a monumental impact, not only on the Navy Department, but the prosecution of the war. This is somebody who, in a short amount of time, had a great impact and was obviously viewed in the administration as an authority. You know, the fact that he was even asked to be acting Secretary of the Treasury while most everybody else was out of town, this was somebody who was obviously seen as being a key player in the administration. Now, to that end, the only things that I can really ding him on are A, the Lawrence issue. And you know, how that turned out, but then also with not realizing the symbolic importance of the nation's capital. And again, that gets back to that blind spot that he had, you know, even though to some extent, I think somebody like Jones was needed. We needed somebody at the time, the Madison administration needed somebody in that role who would just say, this is just business. We need to make this work. But there are those times that you have to have a greater awareness that even though something on paper looks good, how does it really play out? And especially with the burning of Washington, now granted, he wasn't really the one whose responsibility that fell to, that was more of Armstrong. But here you have 
a respected cabinet member saying, oh, well, I don't think there's an attack coming. Well, I, th- I think that's it right there is. So, so to your first point, if he had, didn't have a blind spot about some of those intangible matters of pride, that could have been yet another tool that he used to make the Navy Department better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and in recommending flag officers for the Navy, I think he was kind of heading in that direction. But much like not, not wanting to host parties in Washington, I don't think he put much stock in it. I don't think that he, he thought it was a big deal. So even though he may have head faked in that direction, deep down, he was like, why are we quibbling over this? Why don't you just go do the job? Because that's what his whole day was like. And so I could see where he's coming from, but he missed an opportunity there. And then when it comes to the symbolic uh, um, position of, I mean, the, if the enemy takes your capital, it kind of feels like the war is over. Now, he may have come now, again, going back to the revolution, when the British took Philadelphia in 1776, um, 77, part of part of the consensus at the time was, oh, well, it's no big deal. Like, it's just Philadelphia, even though it was the largest city in the colonies and all that kind of stuff. So at the time, the experience of the revolution says, well, the British took Philadelphia, but it didn't mean anything. And so, you know, he's of a generation where they've taken the capital before and we still won. And that tends to overlook a number of things like the British voluntarily gave up Philadelphia instead of having to be driven out with a whole different scenario. But I can see where he's coming from. But again, he misses the symbolism of not just the city, but his role as an expert in this matter. So when the Secretary of Navy and Secretary of War are telling you, eh, they'll never come here and take Washington, that changes the defensive posture of the city. And it it makes everybody go, well, the guys in charge of the military are saying, we're not a target, so we're going to act like we're not a target. And that, again, is another missed opportunity mm-hmm. for him because it probably would have been better to say, I don't necessarily think they will, but we should really plan like they're going to. And that would, would have we would have had a different outcome. And so I think he was rightly criticized uh, for that. Yeah. And so with that, with our scores for this round as well as the first round, William Jones is now at a 35.5 in terms of his score. But now we have to discuss the hot seat round, which is any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. Of course, this does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And we can take away up to 10 points each. So we've got a couple of things, but I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this because, you know, we have that he was engaged in the opium trade, but it was legal. We have that he was, you know, using his office to benefit friends and associates, but that was a pretty accepted practice at the time. So how much can we really critique him on? And is there anything else that I'm missing here? Well, I think a lot of the problem is, is that there isn't, there just isn't that much information. So we're not in a position to be able to point to a specific fact. We more have to extrapolate based on what other things that he did. Mm -hmm. Right. So from that perspective, I would say he got into the opium trade because it was a lucrative business. Right. Mm -hmm. And he had the means to make that work because 
he had no trouble hopping on a ship going around the world dealing with wherever your opium came from and then bringing it back he he took on a lot of risk to do it uh, from the embargo years you know so i think for him it was kind of he saw it as a standard old business venture now much like the people who transported slaves uh, back when the slave trade was going on can you be in the opium business and not see the downside of the trade right because you have to think that he knew that people were getting addicted to opium and dying from it and ruining their lives over it like any other kind of addictive drug and he kind of just had to ignore that i would say for the sake of the goal he was after which is kind of his whole life that's what he did he ignored he ignored the emotional personal human side of whatever he was doing for the sake of the larger goal which makes you efficient but does it make you a really good guy i don't think so and so there's that there's the debacle of of the washington dc uh because i feel like if he possessed i think it's a lack of imagination if he possessed the imagination to say well if they take the capital we might lose the war for one thing but even if we don't it's going to look like we lost the war there's going to be morale problems we're going to have trouble with allies like this is not great and so it's it, wouldn't it be better for us to focus on the symbolic and tangible value of washington dc as part of the war effort instead of just a strategic calculation and so I feel like that did not work out for him. And I want to take points away for the whole Chauncey uh, uh, Perry thing, because now listening to what you've said about it, I'm not sure there was a way to thread that particular needle. It sounded like Chauncey was fairly well dug in. And you almost would think, well, if I can't solve the per interpersonal problem, then I have to forget about it entirely and focus merely on the strategic victory, which, you know, worked out for him but think about if it had gone the other way and perry had not won <laughs> then then jones's blind spot when it came to the officer corps would have really drawn some scrutiny so he benefits from having been right in the end on some of these things but he was taking a fairly big risk of it going the other way so i'm inclined to take away probably three or four points let's say four points uh, for each of those things where uh, where he lacked imagination was not was not very far seeing he was very short sighted in those regards and the consequences of that uh in terms of washington's capture were were a big deal but the potential consequences from uh you know the great lakes battles could have also been way worse and so i feel like his blind spots kind of made him roll the dice with the war effort that he was otherwise very much committed to. And so, yeah, he's going to lose four points for that. And I think I'm going to go a little, I'm going to take away two points just because in the context of the larger schema of cabinet members, I know we've got some, we've got some scandalous folks up ahead <laughs> and we've, and um, John Armstrong, the next cabinet member that we're going to discuss, this is going to be one of his categories. So <laughs> I don't want to take away too much from Jones, but I do feel that we do need to address, you know, a couple of things like, like you said, Stacey, there was the potential for disaster on the Great Lakes front. 
by taking this risk. And, and again, like we see from Jones, he is somebody who is more than willing to take risk. He, so, and most of the times it pays off, but when it doesn't, there's a spectacular failure, you know, going into office and having be, being so heavily in debt. And then with his tenure as the bank president, again, it was a risk and it failed. But when it works, it works. But still, sometimes you need to play it safe. And were there times that he probably should have played it a little safer? Possibly. Right. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I find with historical figures is when they're afflicted with certainty, Mm -hmm. that's when things are going to go badly. Because why didn't he know that there was an embargo going on and that his ships would be impounded? You know, I mean, why wasn't that something that he considered because he could have then diverted the shipment somewhere else where he could have sold it for a profit. And so did he not know? Or was he one of these guys who was like, oh, that'll never happen? Like Washington, D.C. Oh, that'll never happen. So I'm just going to proceed with my firm conviction and my own rightness and nothing bad will happen. And then something bad happens. So I think, I think you know, this, the, the sum up of William Jones is, he wasn't afraid to do the work. He wasn't afraid to take the risks. He didn't lack personal courage, but his blind spots were very blind. <laughs> and and uh, the, not the, the damage that he he that came from that was one thing, but the potential what if was what could have been way worse. So. Absolutely. And and also to your point earlier about the opium trade, you know, it's clear people are getting addicted to this. This is something that's bad. It's having a negative impact but he was in business and he didn't necessarily. And and again, even though there wasn't necessarily a, an expectation of ethics and business, like we think of in the 21st century, still we've got to take something off there. He, he was profiting and he, there was no denying this was a bad thing. So it wasn't like selling, it wasn't like selling tea or coffee. Yeah. It, it right. was something it was, different. Yeah. yeah. And so we are subtracting six points from his total. So he is currently at 29.5. But now we talk about the tenure of office. So this is the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. So as we said, he began office on January 19th, 1813 and left office on December 1st, 1814. Rounding up, that gets him two additional points here. So we do have our bonus rounds. Unfortunately, he does not qualify for any of those because he only served in one full-time cabinet position, so he doesn't earn the point for being in more than one cabinet post. He only served in the Madison administration, so no point for serving in multiple administrations. And he definitely did not become president. So that means William Jones wraps up the seat at the table with 31.5 points. But Stacy, we have one more question to consider. After all I've shared about William Jones's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? I think it's very close. Um, on, on the plus side, 
one of the major things that gets you a seat at the table, I think, is the legacy on your particular institution. Because, you know, there's there's how we evaluate how you did the job. And in that in that context, your successes count and your potential failures don't to me. So, you know, the Great Lakes campaign is a win, even though it could have gone badly. Um, the capture of Washington, D.C. wasn't fatal <laughs> to the war effort. And so when you look at his tenure in office, he succeeded on paper in a lot of cases. But even more important than that, he sought to improve the institution for the long term. And that's one of those things that I think gets you a seat at the table, even as an instructive lesson to future cabinet members, right? Because I imagine them all sitting around at a table because I also lack imagination. But but you wanted William Jones there the same way you wanted Benjamin Stoddard there. And if the only lesson that they could impart to their successors and to their peers and to future cabinet secretaries is do your job to the best of your ability, support your administration, but don't be afraid to tell truth to power, which I think he didn't have a problem with either. I think he called it like he saw it because he was a very practical dude and innovate, have some vision and do what you can to improve things. Even though you may be under the gun, literally during your tenure in office, if you still have the bandwidth to say, well, we need admirals and we need a military, we need a naval academy and we need a professional officer corps that knows how to run a ship. That's a big deal. So, I, you know, I don't know if, if the seat at the table maybe has a kid's table off to the side, but for me, he is very close uh, to the all-stars. I almost want him in the room because of the message that he sends to other cabinet ministers and, and, and successors. Yeah. I think this is one and it's really because he did have a great impact in a short amount of time, but how much of an impact was it? And is it enough to kind of get him over that threshold? Right. Right. And that's so, you know, that's where you kind of speculate. Like if he had, if he had served longer or he had, um, served in more than one administration, you know, so in, in the, on the one hand, you're saying, wow, he, he did have a significant impact for only being in office for two years. And then the other question is, what if he had served when there was no war going on and he had more freedom and latitude to improve the Navy, right? But all those things didn't happen. And so you can't give him credit for things that he didn't do. And so I feel like, I feel like he just misses it uh, in this case. Yeah. So, unfortunately, even though he came close, we're saying no. Yeah. It's a high bar. I mean, it should be a high bar. It should be. It, it, really, it, it really needs to be, you know, and, and in, in the case of William Jones, kudos for getting as close as you did. And, and I think that I kind of like his, his work ethic. I like his fixer role. Clearly, he had the confidence of James Madison. Yeah. And... It also feels from your sources that his detractors are military historians who may be more focused on the officer corps. You know, so if you believe that success in military operations comes entirely from your military leaders, then the bureaucrats back in the Capitol are not your heroes. And so, 
I feel like some of the criticism that that Jones may have gotten from the military historians is due entirely to the fact that he was a civilian mucking about between two captains, which could have sunk the whole operation. And that's just not something you do, right? And so I feel like military historians want the secretaries of war to kind of get them the money and stay out of the strategy and let the military men run the military operation. And so I think he takes a hit for that. But um, what we have here, I think, is a is a, a guy whose heart was in the right place, got a thankless job. The timing was bad. And he came to the office with a couple of not unexpected blind spots, but ones that uh, didn't help him and could ultimately have caused lots of damage. And so for that, he just misses it. But even though he doesn't get a seat at the table, I think we both agree you know, this is a figure who is deserving of more research and is a key figure to understand if you're trying to understand the Madison administration, if you're trying to understand the War of 1812, this is somebody that you really need to engage with in that historical context. And so, you know, this has been, and, and I know for me, and I hope it's been for you as well, Stacy. I have so enjoyed doing this research and being able to share this information about this, this often forgotten figure of the Madison administration. Right. And I think that, you know, we tend to, you and I so far have done episodes on secretaries of the Navy who, you know, they seem to be the same kind of person. And so not only more research on Jones and Benjamin Stoddard, but almost a history of the Navy department and how it evolved because it always felt like the forgotten stepchild of the American military in the early days of the Republic. Mm -hmm. Like we don't want a Navy, but I guess we need one. And so I guess we better find somebody to run it. And I guess we better scrape up money from somewhere to barely fund its operations and yet they pulled off some significant and phenomenal successes when they were given almost nothing to work with. And that alone, to me, is a big story. And, uh, you know, so like Teddy Roosevelt, another of my favorites, wrote a book on the Naval War of 1812, where uh, when he was nobody, by the way, and the Navy Department made the book required reading. They had a copy in all of their ships. So this time period in naval history is significant. And so... I think part of the reason it it is so significant is because you had the right guy in charge. And if it had been somebody else, things could have been way worse. And so I think that that Jones and Stoddard should get should get some credit for that because they were kind of toiling in the in the basement of American government at the time and but they were necessary and they knew it and they persevered because they realized that there was a bigger objective and and that's commitment and i admire it absolutely well stacy i cannot thank you enough again for joining us for this seat at the table episode i cannot thank you enough for your friendship and support words of encouragement i, I just i cannot thank you enough for everything i'm happy to do it i love coming on the show I always learn a lot from you, uh, you know, in person, but also just listening to the podcast. Um, I firmly believe that we history nerds need to stick together for common defense. Um, and I and I particularly enjoy your perspective on these historical events because they're relevant to modern times. 
I mean, that one of the reasons to study history, I, de I derive a lot of comfort from studying history because all this has happened before and will happen again. But it restores my faith in people to see even some of these obscure guys that, that we're not sure what year they were born. They did what they had to do for their country. And that's a good lesson for all of us to learn. So um, I'm always up for this. Anytime you've got an obscure historical figure I know nothing about, I am more than happy to come on and, and learn some things. Well, there are plenty up ahead. So I will be glad to take you up on that on that offer. And in the meantime, I hope that our listeners will check out History's Trainwrecks. I will post information about that, as well as the Valley Forge Project. On the page for this episode, I'll share it on my social media as well around the release of this episode. And so last but certainly not least, I want to thank our audience for listening. I hope this has been enjoyable for you as well. I hope you've gained some insight about how this lesser-known figure fits into a larger story of the Madison presidency. And I hope you'll join us next time. We are going to be talking about John Armstrong, and believe you me, if you thought there was something to talk about with William Jones, there's something to talk about with John Armstrong. So thank you so much, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't yet, please check out the Presidencies of the United States podcast at presidenciespodcast.com. I am grateful to Jerry, as always, for having me on his show because I always learn a lot, and his perspective on history is unique. There is no shortage of worthy cabinet secretaries to learn about, and after two guest spots on Jerry's show, I am now likely an expert on Navy secretaries. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening.